Well, this morning we begin a new series in Paul's letter uh, to the Romans. It's easily uh, Paul's most comprehensive letter and theological treatise, uh, so to speak. And it'll be the main series that we're going to go through over the next few months even, uh, maybe even longer than that. Uh, while we look at other topics in the middle, which we will come to uh, periodically, occasionally, this is going to be what we're going to look at, uh, like we've done with Corinthians, we've done with Acts, and other books as well. I love this book, I love this letter, uh, but I have been uh, putting off preaching it for some time because of how big a task I feel it is. Uh, and I think that sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's a daunting one because it's, it's just got so much in it uh, for us to look in. But, I, but you can't stay away from it because it is so rich and so deep and so essential uh, for the Christian life that we have to dive deep into what Romans has to teach us. And so I encourage you to read through the letter, you know, uh, over the next few weeks. Make it part of your reading plan and just read through Romans two or three times if you can do that. It will begin to make sense and begin to come together in your mind and you'll begin to see the flow of thought that Paul has for us. And even when you listen to the sermons, it'll make it easier for you uh, to follow through with it. But uh, that's what we're going to look at. It's fitting that Paul chose to write his most comprehensive letter to the Romans. Rome being the greatest city in the ancient world at that time, the center of the world, if you like. And Paul reserved this letter, the longest of his letters, uh, to write it to these brothers and sisters in Rome. So I want to give you a brief introduction. And uh, I hope you don't switch off at this time, but it's good to have a little bit of a background uh, to the letter itself. And hopefully it won't take too long and then we'll jump into uh, verses 1 to 7 for us this morning. But I want to talk to you a little bit about Paul's relationship uh, with the church in Rome. Of all the letters that Paul wrote to all the churches that he wrote to, this was the only place that he had never visited and neither was he involved in the founding of the church at Rome. Ephesus, Galatian churches, Philippi, all of these places he had something to do with and he had visited those places, but not with Rome. He had never been there. He had no role in the founding of the church in Rome. Now this letter was likely written around AD 70, while Paul spent about three months in Corinth. He wanted to travel to Rome. He really wanted to go and be there and you'll actually see that through the letter several times. But he first had to make a visit to Jerusalem because he was carrying the money collected for the people who were suffering because of the famine uh, in Jerusalem. So he was carrying money from uh, Corinth and from uh, Macedonia to those churches in Jerusalem. Now, while he first visited Corinth a few years earlier, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 18, Paul met a couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And this couple was from Italy. It says that they were from Rome, in other words. Now, these people also were tent makers like Paul. And I like that story, right? Because three of them got together and they started their business of tent making as they spent about two years in Corinth. And as they did their work of tent making, they also continued to teach and preach and proclaim the gospel of Christ in that city. Read about it in Acts chapter 18. But there's no doubt that Paul developed a strong relationship with Aquila and Priscilla while he was in Corinth. And eventually at the end of the letter to the Romans, he writes to them. He sends greetings to Aquila and Priscilla as well. So he has a connection with them and that's his connection with the church in Rome. 
But I think he also met a few other people because he names them in Acts chapter 16. Uh, a number of, of names that he lists in Acts chapter 16 at the end of it. Uh, of people that he had a connection with and I assume that he probably met them while he was in Corinth and had something to do with them. And the reason why was because sometime in the early AD 50s, Claudius, who was the emperor of Rome, kicked all the Jews out of Rome because they were causing trouble with something, someone to do with the name Christus, which we assume is Christ, right? And so you kick them all out of Rome. And so I think a lot of them came to Corinth and Paul had some interaction with them at that time. At the end of the letter in Acts chapter 6, uh, sorry, in Romans 16 verse 1, he names a lady, Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencria. And he commends, it's the only person he commends in this letter to the church at Rome. And so we can assume that Phoebe from Corinth was the one who carried the letter to the Romans when she went to Rome and delivered it to the church over there. Amazing, isn't it? And so one of the things that I love about uh, Romans and chapter 16 in particular is that almost the entire chapter is dedicated to various people whom Paul had met and served alongside. Read it sometime. And I think it's so important for us as believers to build Christian relationships, not just in the congregation over here, but as you meet Christians in different places, connect with them, take their numbers, get in touch with them. You know, and, 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 and you don't know what opportunities might open up as you do that kind of ministry. And so I think that's just a great exhortation to us. And one of the characteristics of Paul's ministry is that he always had people with him. Wherever he went, he took people with him. Just a, a mark of his ministry, so to speak. Now Paul would eventually make it to Rome. After Jerusalem, he would head back out and he would eventually... But when he went to Jerusalem, he was arrested by the Jewish authorities and then by the Roman authorities. And finally, the only way he made it to Rome was under a guard. And Paul was there a few years before he was killed by Nero, the emperor, sometime between AD 65 and 68. Now, Rome was the greatest city in the world at that time, as I mentioned earlier already. It was the seat of power, of wealth, of prosperity. And you know the saying, right? All roads... You don't know the saying. Not Delhi. All roads lead to Rome, right? That was the saying. And that was a way of saying that Rome was at the center of the world. Right? So there was a great, there was a great sense of, of the position that this city had in the Roman Empire. And I, I like that. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know what? Delhi is, is a pretty big city as well, isn't it? It's a significant city in the cities of the world. It's the capital city of one of the largest, most populous nations in the world. It's the seat of power. It's the seat of politics. It's the seat of, of, of you know, the armed forces and the judiciary and all of these big branches of government and rule. Delhi is the capital city and so it's a significant place. And so as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know what? This is going to be good for us. Because we can look at Romans and say, you know, how they lived in their context in a great city like theirs. And it would be instructive for us as we live in the city of New Delhi, that, we, uh, that is, a, is, a, is one of the greatest cities among the cities of the world even today. So let's jump into um, uh, verses 1 through to verse 7 that uh, Rina had 
read for us. The focus of this section is the gospel of God, which is really what he's going to talk about in some way or the other through the entire letter. And so hopefully as we go through this, you become so familiar with the gospel of God and all the ramifications of it. There are four descriptions for, of the gospel uh, that Paul gives us in these verses. I'll tell you what they are and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump through the verses. First of all, it is the gospel of God. It's the gospel of God. It's the gospel that has to do with God. We'll talk about that. It was promised beforehand, this gospel. It is about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a gospel proclaimed by the apostles among the nations. Alright, so four things will come to them uh, one by one. Now in verse 1, you got your Bibles open? You got your phones ready? Yeah? In verse 1, Paul begins like this, with an introduction of himself. And he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Let's take those very briefly and very quickly. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Some of your Bibles might have the word slave of Christ Jesus. Some have bond servant, which I think is probably the better translation of that. A bond servant, a servant who willingly attached himself to his master and said, I have no other master but one. This is not like the servants we have in our homes, right? They clean 10 different houses and then they come to our house. This is not that kind of a servant. This is the servant who was completely and totally devoted to the one master. And Paul speaks of himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. I love that description. It puts him in such a humble position before God. He was not at the center. And as great as Paul was, as extensively as he traveled, as well known as he was, Paul was a servant of Christ Jesus. What a description. God was the one who was leading him. And I wonder how we see ourselves. Whether we are at the center of the universe, so to speak, or whether God is the one who calls the shots in our lives. Who determines the course of your life? Your thoughts, your decisions, your actions, your words. Who determines those things? And Paul would say, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, a bond servant of Christ Jesus, meaning that I'm completely and totally devoted to him. Worthwhile thinking about for ourselves. Are you a servant of Christ Jesus? And then he goes on to say, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. I'll take both those together. Now the word apostle has a very narrow definition in the scriptures. It refers to those who had seen the resurrected Christ, 1 Corinthians 9.1, and those who were directly commissioned by the resurrected Christ and were set apart by him to carry the gospel to the nations, Acts 9.15. And then in Ephesians 2.20, we read about the foundational role, foundational role that the apostles had in the church. Right? And so they were, they were part of the foundation of the church, Acts, Ephesians 2.20. Such a unique group of people. It's interesting that in Acts chapter 1, Peter looks at the apostles, now diminished because Judas was gone. And he said, we've got to replace Judas. We've got to make up the 12 again. Right? So there was, in his mind, there was this fixed number of people that Jesus had called and commissioned to go out as apostles. And we need to find someone like that who has seen the Christ, who has been commissioned by the Christ. And so they do that. 
In fact, in Revelation 21 verse 14, right at the end, you have the, uh, the description of this city and the wall of that city on which were in inscribed the names of the 12 apostles. And so it definitely seems like the apostles were a, a definite group of people. Now you people talk about the apostolic gift and yeah, maybe some people have gifts similar to what the apostles had in the way they carry the gospel to the nations. But the apostles themselves are a unique group of people. And there's, there's, there's much more that can be said about that, but it was a, a unique office for a unique time in the history of the church. And so Paul talks about himself uh, as an apostle set apart for the gospel of Christ. Set apart, that means he was called, Christ called him to take the gospel. So let's look at the gospel. What is this gospel that he is taking? Let's look at the four descriptions that, that we have. The first one, like I told you, is that it was the gospel of God. It was the gospel of God, the good news of God. Important place to start and it seems obvious, right? But the gospel is from God and it is about God. It is not about music and churches and strategies and goals. It is about God. Fundamentally, the gospel is about God. The good news is God himself. He is the good news. It isn't some, something separate that God is revealing to us. God is revealing himself to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What you and I need the most is God. Not the things we hope to get from God. We need God. And if we understand this, then we will go to God for God. Just think about that for a moment. Why do you usually go to God? Isn't it that we usually go to God when we need things from Him? God help me with my job, help me with my help, help me, help, help me with my spouse, help me with my children. You know, so we, we and, and those are absolutely fine. You've got to go to God for those things. But if all your relationship with God is governed by getting things from God, you're missing the point of the gospel. We're missing the point of the gospel. I like the title of a book written by John Piper. And you can probably get it on his website, Desiring God. It's a free download. And he titles the book like this. God is the gospel. Great title, isn't it? God is the gospel. God is the gospel. In other words, God is not a means to an end. He is the end itself. God is the treasure that we are looking for. God is the light at the end of the tunnel. He is the goal of the Christian life. God is the gospel. Everything begins and ends with God. And so what, what is Paul proclaiming over here? He is proclaiming the gospel that is about God. He's proclaiming God himself. I like that. Now if, you're, if your life and my life is, is not about God and for God, then we're missing the point of life. You're missing out. You don't, you're not able to, do, do you, you know, you can, you can wander around saying, what's the purpose of my life? If God is not at the center of it, you're missing out the point of life. You know, it was interesting that in earlier times, uh, people thought that the earth was at the center of the universe. Ever read about that? Funny, isn't it? The earth was at the center and we thought that the sun was revolving around us and we felt really good about it. 
until a scientist named Nicholas Copernicus in 1514 came along and he did his research and he said, no, 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 wait a minute. The sun is actually at the center of our solar system. And we are actually the ones going around. And then as science went on and dug a little bit deeper and went into the universe, they found that even the sun is not at the center of the galaxy. It's one of the billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And then they went out further and they searched further and they, they, they found that the Milky Way galaxy is one of the billions of galaxies in the universe. Even the Milky Way galaxy is not at the center of the universe. You see how small we are? We're a small little dot on a planet that isn't, that is rotating, revolving around the sun, that is not at the center of the universe, in a galaxy that is not at the center of the universe. We're in one little corner somewhere tucked away. We're not at the center of it. And I use that as an illustration because God is the center of it. Everything that we see and know of the world and the universe, God is the one who upholds it by the word of his power. He is at the center of it, not us. And it's pretty big of us to think so much of ourselves that we walk around and we strut around with pride, with our chest out like we govern and we have control of our lives. We barely know what to eat next morning, let alone anything else. God is at the center of absolutely everything. God is the gospel. And that's one of the things you're going to see through Romans, the sovereignty of God, the greatness of God, the glory of God. Paul at the end of Romans chapter 11, he says, Oh, the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways, how inscrutable are his ways. Amazing. So God is the gospel. And so that's the first thing. It is the gospel of God, about God. Uh, you know, and so that's the first thing that he talks about. The second one is that the gospel was promised beforehand. Look at this, what he says in verse 2. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now this is a reference to how the Old Testament is pregnant with prophecy concerning the unfolding of God's plans through his son it's full of prophecy and we you know we often talk about it at christmas time isaiah 9 6 and 7 you remember that right for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government shall be on his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's a, a prophecy of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament and Jesus fulfills that. And that's just one of the many references to the coming Messiah that the Old Testament speaks about. My mind is also drawn to the prayer of the early church in Acts chapter 4. As they were faced with the opposition of the religious authorities, they got together and they prayed and they said, truly in this city is gathered against your people, you know, all of these people. And then he says over here in Acts 4, 27, 28, he says, for truly in the city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Whoa. They were gathered.
to do whatever your hand, O God, and your plan had predestined to take place. That speaks of the sovereignty of God in what was probably, you know, conceivably the most horrific evil we can imagine perpetrated on the sinless Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he went to the cross. And yet as Christ was on that cross, he was at the center of the will of God. It was part of God's plan and his purpose. That's the sovereignty of God. Nothing is outside of the sovereign control and the permission of God. And it gives us great assurance in the plans and the purposes of God. Even the hard and the difficult times. And I know you're facing it. Each one of us, we go from week to week. And there are some weeks, you know, it's great. Everything's fine. The car starts without a problem. The, the, the servant comes on time. No issues. The boss is good to you. And there are some weeks, none of that happens. It's just terrible. And you feel miserable about yourself and your life. Or, or even worse than that. And somehow in the midst of that, you and I as believers, we look to God, the sovereign God who plans and purposes all things for us. Remember that verse in Romans 8.28, right? For God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans is, is flush, it's rich with all of these gems of verses that we quote time and again for our sanctification. And so here again we see that the gospel was something that was promised and purposed beforehand and it speaks to the sovereignty of God, the plans and the purposes of God. Let's come to the third one. The gospel is about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's about God. It is about, it is something, you know, proclaimed or, or promised beforehand and it is concerning the Son of God concerning the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes in verses 3 and 4, he says this, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that key word in verse 3, concerning, the gospel of God, concerning, and then he goes on to describe what he's talking about in regard to the Son. Now, there are two ways that Paul speaks of the Son here. And I want you to, I know it's hot and I know it's difficult with the humidity to focus, but that's Romans, all right? And we want to keep, keep our minds on and keep focused and kind of dig deep. It's going to be rich as we go through it. But here's two ways that Paul speaks of the Son. He speaks of his human nature and he speaks of his divine nature. His human nature and his divine nature. You see, Jesus is unique in that he is fully human and fully divine. He is not two persons, but one person with two natures. And this is part of the mystery of who Jesus is. You know, we talk about the Trinity as being something that you've got to scratch your head about. Think about the person of Christ. Try and delve into who he is, that he is fully God and fully man at the same time. How does that even work? But that's how the scriptures reveal this person of Jesus to us. In his human nature, Paul writes, he was a descendant of David, meaning he was born of the line of David. That's a fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. 
And so if you read Matthew's gospel, you have the genealogy of Christ. And in that, he traces Christ's genealogy back to David. Because there was this expectation that the king would come in the line of David. Jesus fulfills that messianic expectation. And it's not just about his humanity, but it is about the fact that he is the anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah. The, you know, when we, when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not his surname as much as it is his title. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. That's who Jesus is. That's who he was as Paul uh, speaks of him over here. And so you know that saying, right? We talk about the son of God became the son of man so that the sons and the daughters of man can become the sons and the daughters of God. I like that. It's a good way. It's a very succinct way of thinking about what Christ has done for us. You know, Christ saved us by becoming like us, except that he was without sin. Except that he was without sin. And I, I want to make a quick point over here because sometimes we think that sin is part of humanity. It isn't. Sin is part of fallen humanity. It is not part of the original plan and purpose for God. And so sometimes, you know, we, we sin and we say, you know what, I'm only human. No. Yes and no. Yes, we want to be humble and recognize that we do struggle with sin, but don't make excuses for sin. Because you're a redeemed person in Christ. Sin shall no longer have mastery over you, is what Romans talks about again in Romans chapter 7. You're a new person in Christ. And so Christ, you know, came and became like one of us and he took on our humanity in the fullest sense, the most perfect human being to ever walk. And he didn't have sin in his life. That's what a human being looks like, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's move on to the second description. You know, when Christ was incarnated, becoming the son of David in the line of David, he did not cease to be divine. He continued to be divine. In fact, he poured his divinity into the form of a human being. And you know, there were, there were three disciples who got a glimpse of that. Remember? Peter, James, John, when they went up to the Mount of Transfiguration and they stood there with Jesus and Jesus, you know, he revealed his glory to them. And for a moment, they got a glimpse into this divine Son of God, so beautifully, perfectly concealed in a human form, like they were, but the divine Son of God. What a vision. And in fact, they said, you know what? We don't want to leave here. Let's build some tents and let's stay over here. And Jesus said, no, we've got to go down. I've come to go down. I've come to be like them, to redeem them. But he continued to be the divine Son of God. And so that's what we read in verse 4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And you've got to read that whole phrase together. All right, read it together. See what he says. And was declared, some of your Bibles say, appointed to be the Son of God in power. And sometimes we might, we might say, oh, was this the beginning of his sonship of God? You know, because he's appointed over here. No, no, read the phrase together. 
was appointed to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now the reason why Jesus doesn't begin his sonship, his divine sonship at this point is because the scriptures reveal him as being the eternal son of God. He's always, he's the eternal God himself. And I want to show you very quickly what Paul says uh, in in Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. He says this, speaking about Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus eternally exists as God, though he was in the form of God, fully divine, did not hold on to that place and its place, but emptied himself uh, by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And the scriptures time and again show us the divine nature of Christ. But what Paul is saying over here in Romans uh, 1.4 is that Jesus, until that moment, appeared to us as the suffering servant that Isaiah talks about. And Isaiah 53 says to us, there was no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was ordinary. And on the cross, he looked broken and battered and bruised. A forsaken person in that sense. What kind of a savior is that? Right? And so we look at that. And yet, on the third day, when Jesus rose again, he rose in power demonstrating, declaring that he was in fact the son of God. That's why Jesus at the end of his ministry, before he ascends into heaven, he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me. Therefore go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. And I think that's what Paul is reflecting on at this point, right? And he says, the gospel is concerning the Son. He's at the center of it. Let's come to the fourth and the final one. The gospel was proclaimed by the apostles among the nations. Look at verse 5, right? He says, uh, through whom, that is through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Let's just stop there for a moment. The gospel was proclaimed by the apostles among all the nations. And so what I want to pick up over here is the fact that we've talked about apostleship already. So let's put that aside for a moment. And I want you to notice that the the focus and the emphasis, the field in which the gospel is to operate, It's not just Israel or the Jewish people, but it is among the nations. It's among the nations. And that's a fulfillment of God's word through Abraham. I will make you a blessing and in you, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. And so here you have Christ commissioning these apostles and he says, I want you to take this gospel and go to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 1.8 he says, Uh, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and finish it. The ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. You and I are in Christ because of the faithfulness of the apostles. Because those people at that point decided to take Christ's word seriously. 
And they went out at great cost to themselves, by the way. All of them, except John, were martyred, as we know from church history. And John also died in exile, not in the best condition. But at great cost to themselves, and not just the apostles. If you read Acts, you will see many others, even just the church that was scattered. They took the gospel with them wherever they went. In fact, the church in Rome, as I was reading, you know, and just studying for this, was not planted by any of the apostles. It was planted most likely by believers who heard the gospel in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And then they went back to Rome and they started the church over there. Amazing, isn't it? That's what we're called to. Because this is a gospel for the nations. And I think that's, just to take a page out of that, one of the most difficult things in the book of Acts, if you read through it, is that the gospel went through a tumultuous time to actually go out to the nations because the Jews kept stopping the progress. They kept saying, no, no, God is only for us, just to put it in, that, in those terms. And that's one of the struggles over there. And I've always thought about that and I've said, you know what, for us also, we've been Christians for years now. Sometimes we think like that. We don't really care about the world. God is for me, my life, my problems, my situations. But that's not who we are called to be. He says very clearly over here, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. To bring all the nations to the footstool of the Lord Jesus Christ. To submit themselves, to surrender themselves willingly, joyfully to the only savior of the world. That's what the ministry of the gospel is. And that's, what the, that's, that's, the, that's the scope of the gospel, the extent to which the gospel is to go out. And I love how Paul ends over here. He says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's good for us, isn't it? To all those over here who are called by God, who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's us. And then he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good note for us to end on this morning. Romans is about the gospel of God. The good news of God. Not of anything else, but of God. God is the gospel that was promised beforehand that is wrapped up, that is concerning the Son who is the perfect uh, representation of God, who is God himself to us. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 says to us. And it's a gospel that's to be proclaimed among the nations. May God continue to bless uh, us as we pick up on this letter and, and go through it. There's going to be lots that we're going to plumb into the depths of. But I encourage you to read and come prepared. And as we study it, God will minister to us. It's a bit heavy at times, but we're going to trust God to help us make sense of it and understand it and apply it in our lives. Let's bow in prayer and I'll invite the team to come up as I'm praying to sing a couple of closing songs at this time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Lord, for 
this amazing letter that we can pick up and as we begin to dig into its depths, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would stir up our hearts within us with a great affection for you, a great joy and delight in your presence and in your word and that it might affect and impact the way we think and therefore thereafter the way we act as well. So bless your people, Lord Jesus, and we give thanks to you at this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.